The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, thanks, everyone. It's, it's a joy to be here. Uh, thank you for welcoming me, even though I am a native New Yorker. Uh, Adam uh, is right that we've come to love Philadelphia very much. Uh, we uh, used to live not too far from here uh, in Ambler. Some of you may know what that is, uh, not too far from here. And uh, when we live there, uh, in the suburbs, you have a lawn. You just have grass and, and lawn. In South Philly, we don't have that anymore, but when we lived in Ambler, we had a lawn. And our lawn was easily the worst lawn in the neighborhood. Like, I think all our neighbors were always mad at us all the time because our, our lawn was always very patchy. Uh, some brown spots, green spots, and it made no sense why it looked like a jigsaw puzzle rather than just like a green lawn. And my wife and I, we didn't know the first thing about caring for, maintaining plants, green things. We're from the city originally, so we didn't know about that stuff. And we were trying to figure out why. Why is our lawn so ugly? Why is our brown spots and green spots? And I had a theory. My wife... Uh, I thought I was crazy, but here's my theory. My theory was it was because of the rabbits. Because in our community, we had tons of rabbits. It was like Australia. And they were everywhere. They were eating everything. And my theory was that on our lawn, uh, where you saw the green patches, that was where the rabbits dropped their stuff. Right? And where the patches are brown, that was where the rabbits more or less left it alone. But that was my theory, and my wife disagreed with me, but I think I still think I'm right. Because why? why? What was behind my theory? Well, it's fertilizer, right? Fertilizer for the ground produces the rich conditions for fertile, lush, green growth. And I still think I'm right, but um, I share that because I think that is a good picture of the Christian life. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, I think that is a picture of your life. Because... Where God produces the greatest fruit in our lives, it's not our strengths. It's not in our achievements. It's not in the places where we look good in our merits. God's grace produces the greatest fruit in our lives in our weaknesses, in our failures, in our shame, and in our suffering. That stuff produces the rich fertilizer for God's glory in your life. And I want to bring that out through a scripture that is dear to me, uh, Matthew chapter 15. If you have a Bible, I'm going to look here this morning. Uh, Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, uh, where we read about Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman, uh, a woman who had heard about Jesus, knew that Jesus was his great healer, and came to him for help, not for herself, but actually for her daughter. And so I'm going to read Matthew 15, 21 to 28. In, in our church context, what we do is we stand when we read the Bible. So can I ask you all now, can we all stand together as we hear God's word? And this is God's word. And Jesus went away from there, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. 
And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let me pray for us before we continue. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask you now to please help us to understand your word. Our eyes are dark and our ears are deaf without the help of your spirit. So spirit, come, make Jesus clear and real to us right now that we may know him, that we may trust him, believe in him, and glorify him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Thank you. So as we read this text, we're, we're left wondering what is going on? What is happening here? Because here's a woman who goes to Jesus for help, and we see here that the first thing he does is he ignores her. And then again, the disciples come and they ask him, Lord, send her away. And I think what the disciples are saying, look, this woman is calling out for help. It's getting a little bit annoying. Just sort of wave your hand, do your thing, help her. We know you can do it. Just do it so that she can be on her way. And Jesus responds basically denying the request, saying something reflected of you at the time, that the Messiah's help was only for the people of Israel, which is not true. Uh, but he said that. And then she is getting no response from him. So she kneels down before him. And in the moment of motherly desperation for her daughter, she's pleading with him. And she just simply says, Lord, please help. And Jesus says this. Jesus says, look, I've got children to feed, and it would not be right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And you just hear what he just said. He essentially compared her to an animal. Right? He called her a dog. Food for the children, not for dogs like you. And what is going on? We're left here reading this and like, is this really Jesus? Like, is this really in the Bible? This doesn't really sound Christ-like of Jesus. Why would he not help her? What, what's he up to? What's he doing here? And we see that Jesus, he is the Lord who knows this woman and he's testing her. He's bringing something out of her that teaches the disciples and teaches us what it means to believe in him what it means to have faith. Uh, by way of outline, here are three points I hope to quickly make in our time here. Three points here. Number one, we see where faith comes from. Number two, we see what faith is. And number three, what faith brings you. Okay, so first of all, where faith comes from. When Jesus compares this woman to a dog here, right? And it's not right to take the children's breath, throw it to the dogs. He's basically calling her a dog. He's not actually saying to her anything that she didn't really already know. You look at the woman here, and there's not many details told to us about the woman, about who she is, but what little we are given paints a picture. We're told that she's from the district of Tyre and Sidon. So that is the other side of the tracks, right? So for us here in Philly, you hear, oh, the speaker's from New York. Immediately you feel disgust, right? Well, that's kind of what they would have, the people of, uh, of Jerusalem at the time, that, that's what they would have felt when they were tired. That's the outskirts. That's the unclean, the Gentile territories. Tyre and Sidon, that's strike one against her. We also know she's a woman. And back then, that time, that place, to be a woman meant severe social economic disadvantages, right? Uh, also, we know that she's a Canaanite. So racially, she's an outsider. So socially, geographically, racially, this woman on whatever ladders there are in that society, she's at the bottom. She occupies the bottom rung. So when Jesus calls her a dog, uh, that's not anything new to her. That wouldn't have been anything new to the disciples as well. 
That's kind of what she was in that time in that society. She was a bottom rung person. Pause there for a second. Can, Can we relate to that? Right? Are there things that uh, might make us feel like dogs? Maybe it's not being from Tyre's side, and maybe it's not being a Canaanite. Right? Those things don't get us. But there are things that do. There are things that we have done in our lives, things that maybe we've said, things that we've committed, maybe great public failures that have gotten out there, uh, and they just have brought us shame. They make us feel like dogs. Maybe things that have done, done to us, many horrible, damaging uh, memorable things people have said to us, done to us, committed against us, maybe things taken from us, right? And the sickness of all that is oftentimes when people uh, are hurt, it's the perpetrators that should feel the shame. But we know there's often the abused and those who've suffered, they're the ones carrying the baggage, they're the ones left in shame. Right? Maybe sometimes it's just things about us that marginalize us and make us feel like dogs. You know, things, just our physical traits, Right? Whether you're physically attractive or not, right? Are you top rung or bottom rung? Maybe uh, your race, are you majority or minority? Uh, are you socially polished? Are you charismatic or are you boring? Right? Top rung or bottom rung? Uh, for me, one of the enduring memories of my childhood is being an unathletic Asian person. I remember the feeling of the, just a schoolyard and the horror as teams are being picked. Right, captains are there, captain here, captain there, and they're just kind of picking the teams. And I'm just sitting there praying, please, I just don't want to be the last one. Just don't want to be the last one. And lo and behold, Sherman is the last one being picked. And I remember walking to the team and the looks on their faces because I wasn't actually picked. I was just stuck with them because I was the last one there. And the shame, shame. And we all have these things, right? Things about us, uh, things that cause people to pull away from us, things that cause us to feel great regret, right? Every culture, every society, every person might say it different, but we're all on these ladders of honor and dishonor, power and shame. The question for you is, what is your shame this day? What is that thing about yourself that you feel like you need to hide? What is that thing about yourself that if it got out, it's hidden, but if it got out, you might strongly be tempted to take your own life? What is that thing about yourself that you just so hate that you just so loathe about yourself, you so wish was different, that you would do anything, pay anything to change, change it. What is your shame? What is your shame? Well, Jesus says to the woman and to us, whatever it is that you've got in mind, as a, ask these questions, whatever it is, that is where Jesus meets you. That is where Jesus connects with you. That is where he deals with you. That's the point of contact between Jesus and this woman, the fact of her, that she's a dog in that culture. She's a dog. And he connects with her there, and he's bringing that out. It's her shame, her disgraces, her social weaknesses. That is where her need shows up, and that is a fertilizer. That's a soil where Jesus will work. That's where faith comes from. It's from there, not the merits, not the strengths but it's in the shame and demerits. That's where he meets you. Secondly, this text also shows what faith is. If you were this woman and you were going to Jesus for help, for your daughter to heal her sickness, and you hear Jesus say these things to you, how might you be tempted to respond? Well, I think most of us might respond in one of two ways. We might either turn up our nose, get very offended, get very loud, Jesus, 
You say it again, I'm going to punch you in the mouth, right? Get very, very defensive, very angry. Or others, uh, others of us might hang our heads, peanuts, Charlie Brown, sort of walk away. Yeah, he's right. What was I thinking coming to Jesus? What was I thinking? Of course he wouldn't help me. But what does a woman do? The woman doesn't do any of that. The woman responds to Jesus and says, Yes, Lord. Calls her dog. And he says, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And that response right there, it is so brilliant. It's so amazing. It's so astounding that many Christians over history have looked at this response right here, these words right here, and just been dumbfounded. And they've been amazed by this. Augustine, church father, Luther, Spurgeon. Today, Tim Keller makes a big deal out of this as well. Uh, more to the point, Jesus loves this response because after the woman says this, what does Jesus say? Jesus answer her, answers her and says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. And in the original Greek, the word for great there is the word mega. So he says, Woman, this is mega faith. This is awesome. Great is your faith. And he praises her. Why? What is so amazing about this woman's response? Well, it is the fact that she's able to hold together two things that no other worldview, no other philosophy, no other religion can hold together. And it's this. It's that, yes, I am a dog, and yet I am blessed. I am unworthy of blessing. I'm unworthy of blessing, and yet at the same time, I can have it. That's so radical. It's so different from way, the way the world operates. It's so different from how we operate, right? If, if we are applying for jobs, you're applying to school, uh, you're applying for a date with that young lady you're interested in, right? What do you do? You put your best foot forward, right? You comb your hair. You bone up for the interview, right? You take a shower. You want to say, right? You put your best foot forward, and you, here's, here's my resume, here are my merits. Here's why I deserve the blessing of working for your company. Here's why I deserve the blessing of being accepted into your institution. Here's why I deserve the blessing of taking you out for pizza on Friday night, right? Here's why, right? And this is what we do. We put on our best suit. We dress to impress. We show all, forth all the reasons why we are worthy. We deserve it. We put these things forward. We put great weight in these things. We hide our faults. We hide our weaknesses. We hide our failures, our miscues. We try so hard not to look like the fools that we actually are because we just know that if we want the blessing, we need to be qualified. If we want the, the stuff, we got to show that we can cut it, right? If I earn it, if I can show I've got the merit, then I can have the relationship, then I can have the blessing. That's how we live. That's how the world works, Right? We take great pride in things and our achievements and our accomplishments. We show forth why we're worthy. Right? And therefore, we can have the blessing. But the woman shows us here that what it means to believe in Jesus and what it means, it means to have a relationship with God that's based on faith in Jesus is completely the opposite. Completely the opposite. She teaches us here that faith approaches God not out of merit, not out of the fullness of my strength. Faith approaches God out of emptiness. Faith approaches God out of nothingness. Faith approaches God out of need, not out of, here, God, look what I can bring you. Faith says, I've got nothing in my hands. Help me. That's what faith is. 
That's what connects you to God. And it's a great hymn that puts it so well. One verse in this hymn says this. Uh, nothing in my hands I bring. Right? Empty handedness. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless I look to you for grace. To the fountain, Lord, I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Right? And that's what faith says. Faith does not say, I'm clean, therefore accept me. Faith says, I'm dirty, clean me. Faith doesn't say, look at my stuff, accept me. Faith says, I've got nothing, fill me. That's what faith is. And that's what the woman is saying when she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. She's saying, I am nothing. I've got nothing. There's nothing I can offer to you. I've got nothing to work with. I'm completely empty-handed. But bless me and receive me, not on the basis of my worth and merits, but solely and surely on the basis of your grace. Lord Jesus, I've got no worth, but my worth is not the basis of why I come to you. Your worth is. Your greatness is. I'm coming to you not on the basis of my merit, but on the basis of your grace. Not because of my greatness do I come to you, but because of yours. That is what faith is. That's what faith says. What do you need to have a relationship with God through Jesus? What do you need to know you've got his love? What do you need to know you've got his fatherly care? What do you need to know that as, as you call out to him, that he hears you? As you sing to him, he delights in your praises. What do you need? All you need is nothing. That's the nothingness of faith. That's what you need. The problem is most people in the world don't have nothing. The problem is most people have something, some achievement, some merit, something in society that society will look at them and say, yes, this is good, this is good. And they've got something, and that's a problem. And it's always the rich and the powerful and the great who struggle with Jesus. You see that all throughout the Bible. You see that in the world today too. And it's always the weak and the poor who get him. That's what faith is. It is nothingness. Third point, we also see here what faith brings you. And the great thing about the conclusion of this little story here is through all the confusing aspects of this narrative and through all the questions, Jesus, what are you doing? It sounds like you're mean to this. What are you doing? At the conclusion of all this, Jesus says to this woman, woman, Great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And the daughter was healed instantly. You learn a couple of things about Jesus here. One thing you learn about Jesus, first thing you learn about Jesus here is that Jesus, he loves faith. Like the humility and the weak dependence that faith is, he loves it. He absolutely loves it. It's like he can't help but just praise it. He loves it. And uh, when he sees the humility of faith, it just gets him. You see this through the Bible. You see these inter interactions with people. He's just moved by it. He's delighted by that, and he never turns that away. Never turns it away. You know, we all have certain songs and movies that just get you, that you love, right? Certain things, and no matter how many times you listen to it, no matter how many times you watch it, every single time it just grabs you. Uh, my wife loves the movie Gone with the Wind, uh, and she has made me sit through that four hours of that torture. And, um, you know, I, I love my wife, so I just do it. But I don't understand why she loves it, but she loves the movie. And her, her favorite scene in that movie is a scene where the heroine of the movie, Scarlett O'Hara, she's at a moment of abject just weakness, just humiliation. 
And she's so hungry that she sees a carrot, a dirty carrot in the ground. And she picks up this carrot and just eats it. She chokes it down. And in a moment of pride, she shakes her fist at heaven. And she says a famous line, right? As, as God is my witness, I will never go hungry again. And then cue the music. And I'm looking at the scene, and I'm like, that's so stupid. How can anyone promise that you're not going to go hungry again? That's, how can you do that, right? And I'm looking over my wife, and there's tears, just tears streaming down her face because for her, for my wife, she's moved and grabbed by this picture of strength, right? She's, uh, no matter what life throws at Scarlett or Harris, she always gets back up, and she's, my wife is moved by that. One of my favorite movies is the Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King. Yes, and... Um, uh, my favorite scene in the movie is uh, towards the end where uh, Frodo and Sam on this journey to destroy the ring of power, save the world, destroy the ring of power in the fires of Mount Doom. They're, towards the end, they're so close to the mountain, but they've got nothing left. All their strength is gone. And uh, Samwise is hearing the despair in his friend, his friend he loves, Frodo. And Sam just loves his friend, Frodo, and says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And he picks up his friend and just starts charging up the mountain, right? And, and tears are flowing down my face because I'm grabbed by that, right? That's, that's friendship. That's loyalty. I see that every time I see that. And my kids are growing older now. They've seen the movies. They see daddy crying, weeping like a little baby in the corner whenever I see that. It just grabs me. Well, one thing you learn about Jesus is that when people come to Jesus with nothing, when people come to Jesus weeping over the need of their souls, that grabs Jesus. That's the kind of Savior he is. He is not put off by that. The promise of God in Scripture is if you come to Jesus in your shame, he will not put you out. He will not cast you out. He will receive you. You will not be put to shame if you go to Jesus. Right? The other thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus, he rewards faith as well. The whole point of this was it was a trial, it was a test, it was an ordeal for the woman, and the woman f- passes with flying colors. Jesus knew what he was doing. He's the Lord. He knew what he was doing. Jesus had this woman's best in mind. And the result of this is that at the end of the story, with one sentence, with a word, Jesus the Savior is able to overturn the verdict on this woman from her culture. In that culture, this woman was, a, was nobody. She was a dog. She was nothing. But with a word of grace, a word of power, he completely flips it around. And he, he holds this woman up for the disciples and for us today, who 2,000 years later are reading about this woman. This woman is memorialized forever as an example, a prime example of great faith. One thing, one thing this woman has on her resume is the Son of God, the judge of all things, praising her, holding her up and saying, this is great faith. You are, this, this faith of yours, woman, it is great. And the Son of God, the one before whom every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess him as Lord one day, the judge, that God is looking at her right now and with just one word, completely overturns her whole life. She's not the dog the world says. She is what Jesus says she is, Right? And in my sanctified imagination, I just, I, just, I just wonder, what was that like for the rest of her life? You know, she had a daughter, apparently, who got well, right? And uh, in my imagination, you know, I'm sure they have fights later on where the daughter's not 
listening to the mom. And the mom pulls out that card. Listen, remember what Jesus said about me? Remember, well, remember what he said, how he praised my faith? Listen to me, right? And plays that card. But she has that in her, in her life for the rest of her life. For the rest of her days, the story of her life, the most important thing that ever happened to her in her life was not the fact that she was born a certain way or she had certain things or she was a certain race or people call her certain things. The most important thing that happened to her in her life, the song of her life, the song of her heart, is the time when the Son of God looked at her, a nobody, a dog, and honored her and granted her wish and healed her daughter, gave her the purple star in the kingdom of God. Jesus, the Savior, covered her shame and out of her shame clothed her with real glory forever. And that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. I want to close with one last story. It's a story of a woman who once saw counseling uh, from a pastor, a woman who was in deep distress, tortured with guilt over a sin she committed long ago. Uh, years earlier, uh, she and her fiancé were youth workers at a large church, well-known, respected church, and they were beloved staff members at that church. And everyone looked up to them. They were so adored and loved, and people listened to them, and they were doing great work uh, for the kingdom of God. And, uh, but they began having sex. And uh, that inevitably left them burdened with a deep sense of guilt, of course, and hypocrisy. But they didn't hit rock bottom until she found out she was pregnant. And the thought and the implications of admitting that to the church, the, of, of what her family and friends might say, was just too much. And so they made the excruciating decision to have an abortion. And uh, the wedding day, she describes, was the worst day of her life. She's walking down the aisle in this white dress, and everyone is just smiling and beaming at her. And she's just thinking to herself the whole time, they don't know what you did. They don't know what you are. You were so proud, so fearful, you couldn't bear the shame of being exposed that you did this evil thing. And they don't even know. And she's in this pastor's office, and she's weeping, and she's saying, I can't believe I did something so horrible. I know the Bible says that God forgives all our sins because of Jesus, but I just can't forgive myself. I confess the sin a thousand times, and still I feel such shame and sorrow. And how could I have done this? How could I have destroyed innocent life? And the pastor says to her, you shouldn't be so surprised because this isn't the first time your sin has led to another's death. This is the second time. And the woman looked at him like she was crazy. And the pastor went on. When you think about the cross of Jesus Christ, who was responsible for that? All of us. All of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent person who ever lived. The very pride that caused you to destroy your child is what destroyed Jesus as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent them there. As Martin Luther once said, that we all carry his very nails in our pockets. You've killed before. And the woman at that point stopped crying. And this is what she said. You are absolutely right. I have done something even worse than killing my baby. I killed Jesus. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. And it doesn't matter that I wasn't there pounding the nails through his hands. I'm still responsible for his death. Pastor, do you realize that I came to you thinking that I had done the worst thing imaginable? And you're telling me I've done something even worse than that. 
Uh, and the pa- pastor sort of paused, scared for a moment. Uh, but then the woman went on. Um, the woman continued, and she said this, but if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I ever imagined, it also shows me at the same time that that evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's son, and even that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? Talk about amazing grace. And, and the woman began to weep again, but this time not out of sorrow, but from relief and gratitude. Here's a woman transformed literally on the spot by the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you before I pray, bring your shame to Jesus. Bring your shame for the first time. Bring your shame continually. Uh, the deep regrets of your life, your un- unmentionables, bring it to Jesus. Jesus is a Savior who can clean you. He will accept you. He will save you. The bloody cross, empty tomb guarantees that. Uh, in Jesus, your shame leads to his glory. So go to him and glorify him. Let me pray for you. And after I pray, uh, you are all dismissed to pizza. And so, all right, let me pray. Our God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the ways it speaks to us the word we need to hear when we need to hear it. And on a day where many of us might be struggling with grades and reputation and shame even, uh, we thank you for a word from our Savior who loves us, who has done all to ensure that we are sons and daughters of God without blemish in God's sight forever. Help us to know that, believe that, trust it, and obey you in light of that today for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. I think you're all dismissed, so thank you very much.